but I said I was going to give advice, and advice should deal with the future, not the past. I have hinted at the past only to awake you to what I believe to be the real nature of human life. I don't believe that the economic motive and the erotic motive account for everything that goes on in what we moralists call the world. Even if you add ambition, I think the picture is still incomplete. The lust for the esoteric, the longing to be inside, take many forms which are not easily recognizable as ambition. We hope, no doubt, for tangible profits from every inner ring we penetrate. Power, money, liberty to break rules, avoidance of routine duties, evasion of discipline. But all these would not satisfy us if we did not get, in addition, the delicious sense of secret intimacy. This is Men With Chest, the podcast that pursues objective truth, goodness, and beauty, where we go back to the great books that made the West and give warning to the fate that awaits mankind should we not cultivate virtue. Welcome to Chapter 1, Sale of College Property in That Hideous Strength. And I opened this episode with a passage from an essay from December 1944. It was a speech, actually, that Lewis gave at King's College. And the essay, or speech, is called The Inner Ring. And that forms a very fitting segue into Chapter 1 of That Hideous Strength, where we see Mark Studdock, the main character, obsessed with this idea of wanting to be in the inner ring. So before we get into that heady strength, I want to give a reminder that we're doing that heady strength because it is such a prophetic book that can give us advice of how we navigate current things that we're dealing with today. It is, I think, the best of the dystopian novels, and then it's uh, not quite dystopian in the end because it actually has hope. It doesn't just end in total despair. And we will discover just how relevant it is for us today as we go through the book. So to begin each episode, uh, each episode is going to be just one chapter. So today is chapter one, and I'm going to do a summary for each chapter as we go, and then I'll dive into particular parts of the chapter and discuss particular things. And remember, this is a story that Lewis is using to illustrate the same points he made in The Abolition of Man. So it's going to be The Abolition of Man put into a story. All right, so the summary for chapter one. The chapter opens with Jane Studdock reminiscing about a sermon on the societal functions of matrimony. This sermon recalls her last time in church, during her wedding six months earlier. Brooding now, Jane reflects on her lackluster marriage to her husband, Mark. Mark is hardly ever home, and even when he is, they haven't much to say to one another. She realizes that Mark will most likely miss a dinner, again, due to a meeting at the college. Jane is supposed to be working on a thesis on John Dunn, but can't focus. She looks at a picture in the newspaper instead, and suddenly recalls a dream. She has many dreams, though this particular dream is different in that the people in it spoke French, and she understood some of the dialogue. The dream was of a prisoner being interrogated by a man with perfect teeth who wore pince-nez. He and the prisoner seemed to know one another, though the dream felt real. When the prisoner continued to refuse whatever the visitor was offering, the dream turned into a nightmare. The visitor unscrewed the prisoner's head from his body and took it away. The head then belonged to an elderly man with a white beard who was in a churchyard, and people were digging the man up. When the man began to wake up, Jane called out for the diggers to stop. When the old man awoke and began speaking a language similar to Spanish, 
Jane woke from her dream in fear. Jane realizes that the picture in the newspaper shows the same head she saw in her dream, the prisoner's head. The picture's headline reads, Execution of Alcasan. Jane then recalls the trial of Alcasan, a famed radiologist who poisoned his wife and was sentenced to death. She reasons that though the picture and paper are dated that morning, she must have seen an older picture of the man when the trial first began. She then puts away her work on Dunn and leaves the house for some fresh air. So Jane is married to Mark and Jane is doing a doctoral thesis on John Dunn. And this is going to be ironic, uh, as we'll see, because Dunn is an author who writes about love quite a bit. And we see the lack of love in the marriage between Mark and Jane uh, right from the get-go. That's the way the marriage is described. At the same time, Mark is walking to Bracton College. He has a sociology fellowship at the college. On his way, he meets the sub-warden, Professor Curry, and is delighted to be treated so familiarly by Curry. Mark is now in the we crowd at the college, known as the progressive element. He's longed to be with the in crowd for some time, though he can scarcely believe that he is now. While talking with Curry, he's told that a colleague, whom he didn't initially admire, Lord Feverstone, is coming to town for the meeting. Moreover, it was Feverstone who secured Mark's fellowship. Though a rival, Denniston was the favorite. Feverstone vouched for Mark. Curry then says that the fellows are considering Feverstone as the next warden. Curry and Mark go into a pub called Bristol to have a drink. The narrator then describes Bragdon Wood, which is an enclosed space on the college. The wood contains Merlin's Well, a place filled with lore that is purported to be the burial spot of the wizard Merlin, wizard Merlin from the Arthurian legend. The college meeting commences, where the most controversial subject is revealed to be the sale of Bragdon Wood to an organization called the NICE, that's the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments. The NICE is a new institute that combines state functions with scientific advancements, thereby doing away with bureaucratic red tape while ensuring a better world for England. Mark realizes, however, that most of the fellows don't even know about the possible sale of Bragdon Wood. The meeting then brings up the possibility of the NICE establishing their headquarters in Edgestowe and being connected to Brecton College. This would bolster the college, as the NICE will be choosing Bragdon over both Oxford and Cambridge. Though there is some hesitation to sell, the NICE will pay for the wood, which would solve the college's financial problems, and the measure to sell the wood passes. In town, Jane runs into Mrs. Dimble, known as Mother Dimble. She's the wife of Cecil Dimble, a fellow and former mentor at Jane's College, Northumberland. Jane agrees to have lunch with the Dimbles, as they used to be close but are losing touch. At their house, Jane is told that the Dimbles are being kicked off the property by Bracton College. Jane had no idea and is shocked. Dr. Dimble attempts to shrug off the situation with humor, though Mrs. Dimble is visibly upset. The women go upstairs, and when Mrs. Dimble presses her on her marriage woes, Jane begins crying, an emotion Jane herself detests in women. She hates feeling dependent on anyone, yet seeks comfort in Mother Dimble. During lunch, the group discuss the Arthurian legend and the sale of the land to the Nice. When Merlin and the Well are brought up, Jane's countenance changes. She eventually leaves the room under duress. She finally tells the Dimbles about her dreams. 
and about the dream of the head in particular. Dr. Dimble suggests that she sees someone to be analyzed, but not just anyone. He tells her that he will give her the contact info for someone specific. When he's called away, Jane returns home. So in that summary, you may have noticed that we have these two parallel storylines. You have Mark, who is involved with the college and the progressive element there. And then you have Jane, who has these dreams, and then she goes to see the Dimbles. And we'll find out more about who the Dimbles are and who Jane is getting involved with. But these are the two different storylines, Mark and what he's doing, Jane and what she's doing. And Mark and Jane are married at the very beginning of the book. All right, so each chapter, too, is broken into multiple subsections. So this first chapter, it has five subsections, and they're just numbered one through five. And as you go through it, then you'll switch scenes from, you know, say Jane at first. And that's how this one opens with number one is with Jane. Then you go to number two, and that's with Mark. So that's how the book kind of flows, where you're bouncing back and forth to these different scenes. And these numbers coincide with that bouncing back and forth. When you switch numbers, then you're usually switching scenes to something else. So immediately we see a connection with the abolition of man because Jane has this dream in which this head of a prisoner is unscrewed from his body. Chapter one of abolition of man was men without chests. And what that meant in chapter one of abolition of man was this idea that people were trying to simply become all head. They were totally stripping out the idea of there being such a thing as just sentiments or ordinate affections. To call the waterfall in chapter one of Abolition of Man sublime, to call that waterfall sublime was meaningless because it was merely a statement of one's own feelings. Okay, so Jane has this dream where she sees this head severed from its body, and she also sees this Merlin-like character. I don't think we at this point know that it's Merlin, but the way it's described is that she sees this second head and it's being dug up from an old churchyard, and it looks like a sort of ancient British druidical kind of man in a long mantle. So that's the second head that she sees in her dream. And then after she has this dream, she wakes up and she finds uh, that the exact head, head number one, the head who's unscrewed from his body, the head of the prisoner, she finds that that head is the exact same person who just got executed in a story in the newspaper. And as anyone would suspect, this is very unsettling for Jane. And from there, then we jump to Mark. Mark is her husband, and Mark is a sociologist at Bracton College. And the scene opens with Mark walking to Bracton College for this faculty meeting. And there's this important line. It says, He did not notice at all the morning beauty of the little street that led him from the sandy hillside suburb where he and Jane lived, down into the central and academic part of Edgestow. And that's important because we get this uh, image of Mark already that he is not concerned with what is beautiful. So same point from chapter one of Abolition of Man, where Lewis was pointing out the importance of recognizing the objective value of beauty and that that is something that is objective and that to deny that is actually to strip out part of what makes us human because it is separating us from the natural law, the created order that we as human beings have access to via our intellect as part of our reason. And so insofar as we deny that, we are choosing to reject our very humanity. 
So as Mark is walking to this meeting, he runs into Professor Curry, who is the subwarden of Bracton College. And Professor Curry is kind of the ringleader of the progressive element. And so while Mark and Curry are chatting about this faculty meeting, Curry uses the pronoun we to refer to both himself and Mark. And this just captivates Mark. He is so excited that Curry is referring to the two of them as we. You would never have guessed from the tone of Mark Studdock's reply what intense pleasure he derived from Curry's use of the pronoun we. So very recently, he had been an outsider watching the proceedings of what he then called Curry and his gang with awe and with little understanding and making at college meetings short, nervous speeches which never influenced the course of events. Now he was inside and Curry and his gang had become we or the progressive element in college. It had all happened quite suddenly and was still sweet in the mouth. And so this is why I opened this episode with that passage from the essay, The Inner Ring, because that is the draw that Mark feels to be part of this progressive element at Bracton College. He wants to be in the inner ring so bad, and we'll see how this affects him in his decision-making as the story goes on. And also in this subsection of the chapter, we find that Mark did not like things which reminded him that he had once been not only outside the progressive element, but even outside the college. He did not always like Curry either. His pleasure in being with him was not that sort of pleasure. All right, so then what is the pleasure that Mark is getting from being a part of this group? Well, if we go to that essay, The Inner Ring, I think we can find exactly what that pleasure is. Lewis writes in there, In any wholesome group of people which holds together for a good purpose, the exclusions are in a sense accidental. Three or four people who are together for the sake of some piece of work exclude others because there is work only for so many or because the others can't in fact do it. So there's an example where you have a particular group of people that is oriented to achieving a particular task or doing something in particular, and therefore it is naturally exclusive. This is a healthy idea because the exclusion is derived from interest or ability, not just for the sake of wanting to exclude. And then this is put in contrast with the genuine inner ring in which exclusion is the primary motive. But your genuine inner ring exists for exclusion. There'd be no fun if there were no outsiders. The invisible line would have no meaning unless most people were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is no accident. It is the essence. It is the essence, meaning it is fundamental. It is inherent. It is a natural element of the inner ring. It cannot be removed from the inner ring. And of course, that's very different from something that is accidental in that it is not inherent to that exclusionary group. The exclusion aspect is simply an accident. And this is Lewis using the terms accident and essence in the way the medieval philosophers would to understand what is the nature of a particular thing, what is inherent, what is permanent about a particular thing. That would be what its essence is, whereas an accident is something that is not necessarily inherent to that thing. So we would say that with a healthy group, the exclusionary aspect of it is a non-essential property or quality of that group. Whereas with the inner ring, the whole point of it is that it is essential that it be exclusionary. That is its very essence. So that is the pleasure that Mark is getting from being 
part of the we here, being a part of that inner ring. It says he doesn't even really like Curry. It's not like they're actually true friends. No, it's just that he gets this pleasure by being a part of this inner ring. He takes pleasure in the exclusionary aspect of that. That is what is giving him pleasure, that he is an insider and that others are excluded. And I think there's even more to this if we uh, go on this idea of friendship now for a sec. So Lewis writes, he did not always like Curry either. His pleasure in being with him was not that sort of pleasure. Now, what Lewis is doing here is subtly referring to the Aristotelian idea of friendship in which there are three types of friends, friends of utility, friends of pleasure, and then friends that are of the highest sort where you are truly in pursuit of the good things. And Lewis is saying here that Curry and Mark are not friends of pleasure. No, they are not friends that uh, take delight in each other's company, that their friendship is oriented around that idea of having delight in each other's company. Instead, it says his pleasure, talking about Mark, in being with him, Curry, was not that sort of pleasure. So the pleasure that Mark is deriving is not even this idea of a pleasurable friendship, which is not inherently a bad thing. It's just not the highest type of friendship. Um, just like utility, that's another type of friendship. That's not a bad thing, but it's not the highest type of friendship. But what Lewis is saying here is that Mark and Curry are not even friends of pleasure. Instead, the pleasure that Mark is deriving from being in the inner ring, being in with Curry, is that he is now part of that inner ring. Therefore, he is a insider and others are excluded. He's getting pleasure from that idea. All right, so with that, I think we have a good understanding of Mark's personality and what he's after. And it's important to grasp because that'll be a key feature of understanding what happens with Mark throughout the rest of the story. And if you want to read the speech, The Inner Ring, I have it in an essay collection called The Weight of Glory. You can probably find it online as well. So the important topic for this faculty meeting at Bragdon College is the sale of Bragdon Wood to an organization called The Nice the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments. The NICE was the first fruits of that constructive fusion between the state and the laboratory on which so many thoughtful people base their hopes of a better world. It was to be free from almost all the tiresome restraints. Red tape was the word its supporters used, which have hitherto hampered research in this country. So the NICE is a constructive fusion between state and science. And so instead of science doing what it does so well, which is discovering the physical phenomenon of our world through you know, physics and biology and chemistry and cosmology and all these fields. So instead of that, it is now fused with the state. And this is technocracy or scientism, where now in the name of science, the state will say that it has the right to do thus and so. And this, of course, is not actually science. This is totally abusing science in order to make ethical judgments about what ought to be done. And just last week, in honor of the inaugural C.S. Lewis Reading Day, I did a special episode on Lewis's essay, Is Progress Possible? It was originally an article in a newspaper from 1958, and it was titled in that paper, Willing Slaves of the Welfare State. So if you want, you can go back and listen to that episode from last week, as it is a very fitting description of the nice Okay, so the NICE wants to buy this property that is owned by Bracton College. And as you go through chapter one, you find that there's a rather strange reason why this particular piece of Bracton College, this particular piece of land is so important to the NICE. And so Curry, he actually reads three letters 
from different groups that are writing in about whether this land will be sold or not. And the three letters that he reads, one is this group that is interested in preserving ancient monuments. So on this particular piece of land, it's called Bragdon Wood. There is an ancient monument and they are interested in preserving it. Then the other two letters deal with something called spiritualism, which today you just think of the general term new age, new ageism, and all these different branches that are uh, kind of lumped into that general category. And one of the letters is from one of these spiritualist groups that wants to observe supposed phenomena taking place around this location. And then another letter comes from a group that wants to film these spiritualists in their quest to, you know, uncover whatever this phenomena is. Now, this is interesting because the NICE, which is supposed to be the scientific organization, is also interested in this piece of land in Bragdon Wood, the same piece of land that these spiritualists are also fascinated by. So we are already getting hints that the NICE may not be exactly what they appear on the surface. There may be more to them. And this harkens back to chapter 3 of Abolition of Man, where we saw that magicians and those who abused science were twins that grew up together around the 16th century in Europe. And they were twins because they sought to subdue reality to the wishes of men. And so it's a matter of power. And any technique that allowed the acquiring of that power then would be the technique that would be adopted. All right, so as the faculty members are talking about this selling of Bragdon Wood, we find that this is a item that has appeared multiple times before on these faculty meetings. So one of the members at the meeting says, We appear to have pledged ourselves as a college to the fullest possible support of the new institute, the new institute being the nice. And then another guy says, We appear, said Feverstone, to have tied ourselves up hand and foot and given the university carte blanche. What all this actually amounted to never became clear to any of the outsiders. They remembered fighting hard at a previous meeting against the nice and all its works and being defeated, but every effort to find out what their defeat had meant, though answered with great lucidity by Curry, served only to entangle them further in the impenetrable mazes of the university constitution and the still darker mystery of the relations between university and college. The result of the discussion was to leave them under the impression that the honor of the college was not involved in the establishment of the nice. Okay, so here we see confusion, lack of clarity. This will be a key feature of how the nice operates. The abuse of language, unsurprisingly, is a vital aspect of how the nice runs their operation. And of course, you see that in the name nice itself, National Institute of Coordinated Experiments nice. You know, what are you against niceness? How dare you be against niceness or progress, the progressive element? What are you against progress? And of course, this is a very effective tactic because then uh, in the name of progress, you can do things that are actually not progressive at all. And there'll be plenty more on that to come, but I'll leave it there for now. So as the faculty meeting winds down, we see that in the end, they end up selling Bragdon Wood to the nice and it's and it's portrayed as being simply a practical decision. The advantages of the sale discovered themselves one by one like ripe fruit dropping into the hand. It solved the problem of the wall. It solved the problem of protecting ancient monuments. It solved the financial problem. It looked like solving the problem of the junior fellow's stipends. It appeared further that the nice regarded this as the only possible site in Edgestow. If by any chance... 
Bragdon would not sell. The whole scheme miscarried, and the Institute would undoubtedly go to Cambridge. All right, so the nice purchases Bragdon would, and whatever strange thing is happening there with this old wall and this ancient well and whatever's happening there. We'll get to that. Uh, now we switch scenes to Jane. So after Jane has that dream, then she goes out shopping. And while she's doing that, she runs into somebody named Mrs. Dimble. And Mrs. Dimble is the wife of Dr. Dimble, who was Jane's tutor. And so Mrs. Dimble invites Jane to come over for lunch with herself and with Dr. Dimble. While they're having lunch, this issue of the sale of Bragdon Wood comes up. The Dimbles live on part of the property that the Nice wants to buy, so they're going to have to move. So that's how that issue comes up. And this topic gets Dr. Dimble to start talking about the Arthurian legend. And this all makes sense because Dr. Dimble knows that there's something to this well that everybody is so interested in in Bragdon Wood. And Dr. Dimble ends up talking about Merlin, the wizard. And when he does that, that ends up causing Jane to be quite uncomfortable. So he says, Merlin too, of course, is British, though not hostile. Doesn't it look very like a picture of Britain, as it must have been on the eve of the invasion? How do you mean, Dr. Dimble? said Jane. Well, wouldn't there have been one section of society that was almost purely Roman? People wearing togas and talking a Celticized Latin, something that would sound to us rather like Spanish and fully Christian, but further up country, in the out-of-the-way places, cut off by the forest, there would have been little courts ruled by real old British underkings, talking something like Welsh and practicing a certain amount of the druidical religion. And what would Arthur himself have been, said Jane? It was silly that her heart should have missed a beat at the words, rather like Spanish. That's just the point, said Dr. Dimble. One can imagine a man of the old British line, but also a Christian and a fully trained general with Roman technique, trying to pull this whole society together and almost succeeding. So it's that talk about something that's like Spanish, talk that's like Spanish, that concerns Jane, because in that dream or nightmare that she had, that second head that was being dug up, it spoke something rather like Spanish. And what Dr. Dimble is describing here is the history of Britain as the Druids came to be mixed with Rome, and along with Rome eventually came Christianity uh, a couple centuries after the Romans first crossed the English Channel. And so he's describing how these characters from the Arthurian stories are a mixture of the indigenous Druidism that was just part of Britain, and then the Roman Christianity that came to Britain later. And so Jane asks him, she says, and where would Merlin be? Yes, he's the really interesting figure. Did the whole thing fail because he died so soon? Has it ever struck you what an odd creation Merlin is? He's not evil, yet he's a magician. He is obviously a druid, yet he knows all about the grail. And so in Merlin, we get a good representative, a good image of this mixture of that ancient druidism and then the Roman Christianity that comes later. And then they go on to keep talking about the cell of Bragdon Wood and what's going to happen when the nice starts digging up that land. And Dr. Dimble says, I wonder what they will find if they start digging up that place for the foundations of their nice. And this all gets too disturbing for Jane, and she ends up having to leave for a bit, and then she ends up spilling her dream to them, telling them what it was that she dreamed. And they recognize that there's something to this dream, and they want her to talk to somebody in particular about it. Uh, Jane's response 
to this when she tells them her dream and she's all concerned about this is to go to the idea of psychoanalysis. She says, do you think I ought to be analyzed? And just prior to that, after she had told them everything, she said, you can start psychoanalyzing me now. And this refers to the impact of Freud's psychoanalysis, which was a key part of the overall materialistic worldview uh, that you could simply explain away any sort of psychological phenomenon, anything that was not natural, anything that was beyond nature, you say the uh, supernatural or the metaphysical, anything past the material, it could be psychoanalyzed away. And so Jane is simply revealing her kind of base presuppositions in her response to this dream that she's having this dream. Okay, well, let's get the psychoanalysis of this. So then I can, you know, be done with it. I don't have to be all worried about this thing anymore. But Dr. Dimble himself isn't so naive. He knows that uh, you can't just explain anything away via psychoanalysis because then the very belief in the psychoanalytical theory itself would be explained away by that own theory. So it's all just self-defeating. It doesn't have any solid ground to stand upon. And very similar to Dr. Dimble is the NICE. Though they present themselves as being this scientific organization, they are obsessed with this well in Bragdon Wood, and they want to dig up this well because they think that there's something there that they can use. Some sort of power lies there, and we already know from this first chapter what that power is. It's the same thing that Dr. Dimble thinks that they're going to dig up. So they also don't think that you can just explain everything away with psychoanalysis. Okay, so as chapter one ends, we see both Dr. Dimble and Mrs. Dimble, and then the nice, very interested in Jane's dream. The nice, of course, doesn't know about her dream yet, at least not that we know of. And their reasons for being interested, the nice versus the Dimbles, is very different, and we'll discover that as we go. Meanwhile, Jane, she doesn't know what all of this means yet. Like we just saw, she is still of that Freudian mindset. And we will pick it up with chapter two next week. If you haven't read chapter one and you're listening to this, I suggest you go and read it. And if you like the show, please leave me a five-star rating or a review on the Apple podcast or wherever you listen to podcast at. You can find the show and interact with me on Instagram or Twitter at menwchests. And if you're just coming on at this point, I suggest go back and do the Abolition of Man series. I think having that background from Abolition of Man will be helpful to be able to get uh, everything that you can out of that hideous strength. As a king governs by his executive, so reason and man must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element, the chest, magnanimity, sentiment. These are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. It may even be said that it is by this middle element that man is man, for by his intellect he is mere spirit, and by his appetite, mere animal. See you next week.